I'm going to welcome you all to come back in after the little siren went off there for you. And I'm going to apologize in advance to Megan if I spill coffee or water all over your seat. Uh, I didn't think it was dipped, so I apologize in advance in case that happens. And to the sound crew for almost breaking this microphone. All right, I'll welcome you in. And as you're doing that, I realized last weekend I gave you the little update of what proximity is going to look like. And there's one thing I forgot to mention. And that is we are looking for volunteers. We need some youth leaders, especially uh, female leaders. Um, so we could use that. And I know, I understand it's a big commitment trying to do every single uh, Thursday from September, well, almost every single Thursday from September until June. So if that's a little bit too big of a uh, commitment, but you're interested, come talk to me and we can see what we can do with that. You can also find position profiles over at the Welcome Center. We have a bunch of them there if you want some more information there, or you can ask me. And then I will also remind all you students to get your registration forms filled out and handed to me as soon as possible. I've gotten one. Jared Sumner is always the first one. It helps that he has someone on the inside uh, to give him information. So I've got one, but I need the rest of them from you for that. Well, let's get to this morning. This morning, we are continuing in our series about wisdom, looking at the life of the wise old King Solomon. Well, now he's old. He started at 12, so he's young before. But this morning, we're taking a little bit of a detour, a bit of a shift, as now Solomon is going to start faltering a little bit in his old age. The proverb, with age comes wisdom, does not actually really happen to Solomon. In fact, a little bit better for Solomon would be with age comes unwisdom. And yes, I made up a word because Brad is a bad influence on me for making up words. But with age comes unwisdom for Solomon. Now, if you were to ask my dad, he would say that I was very familiar with unwisdom when I was younger, which I'm sure many of us are. So I figured I would tell you a couple stories of my unwise moves when I was a child. The first one was when I was, really was a child. I was probably about 10 years old. We lived out in uh, Sherwood Park, Alberta, just south of Edmonton. When I was growing up, we had this dog, and its name was Taj, as in Taj Mahal. I don't know why that was its name. I think that's what its name when we picked it up. I was a baby when they got it. I had no influence. I didn't even know what Taj Mahal was until I was probably 11. Um, but Taj was a whippet, which is a miniature greyhound. This is the closest picture to the coloring. That's not actually Taj there. But because she's a whippet, she is, was super fast, really quick. Greyhounds were racing dogs, miniature greyhound whippet, super fast. Now, those of you who have dogs or, or have had dogs are probably aware that there's, usually there's one person that that dog likes most out of your family. And it's that one person that they'll like follow around everywhere around the house. Sometimes the dog will be really only attached to that person. And if she is in the room, the dog will ignore everyone else and follow that dog. And that was like Taj. And she was really only attached to my mom. So what we would do is we'd walk a few blocks down to the park. And my mom would go to the other side of the field. Me and my brother would hold Taj. And my mom would get to the other side of the soccer field, and we'd let her off her leash, and she would sprint at breakneck speed across the field to my mom. Well, one day, 
My parents were at work. It was summer, so me and my brother were home. My uncle was watching us, and me and my brother decided we wanted to take Taj for a walk. So we took her. Back in those days, a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old could walk down to the park a few blocks away without anyone worrying. So my uncle stayed at home. We took Taj for a walk down the park, and I wanted to see Taj run really fast. I didn't put into my mind the fact that, yes, she runs fast, but she also only really likes my mom in my mind. So what I did instead was got my brother to run to the other side of the field while I held Taj, and I assumed when I let her off the leash, she would run as fast as she could to my brother on the other side of the field. I was half right. She did run very fast in the opposite direction and ran out of the park and away, and our 10-year-old and 7-year-old little legs could not keep up with the miniature greyhound. So we started heading home, preparing ourselves to tell our uncle that our dog ran away because we were very unwise, and there was Taj sitting on the steps of our house waiting to be let in. Very unwise move, but that has nothing, is nothing compared to my, probably one of my most unwise moves I ever did when I was in grade seven, a time when we do lots of very unwise things. I would walk to and from school, usually with friends. This day I didn't have any friends, and when you were walking before the days of Pokemon Go, you would find a rock and you would kick that rock and see how far along you can kick the rock around the path. I'm sure some of you probably still do that when you go walking. Well, this day I decided kicking a rock was not entertaining enough. I decided I was going to up the game a little bit. And instead I decided I was going to see how far I could punt rocks. Now you can probably already see how unwise this move was, but I did not think of it kicking rocks, punting them in the air, being pretty happy with how far I could kick them. And the unwisdom of this move struck me as I was walking towards my house. It was on a corner, so you could walk straight and you would see the house. I'm coming down my street, and I get a really good kick on this rock. Like, it is sailing, flying through the air. And it's going, and it's going further than I kicked any other one, and it lands right in the sweet spot of my grandma's back windshield shattering it to pieces. That is when the unwisdom of that maneuver came flooding into my mind, and my allowance for five months straight went to my grandma to fix her windshield. Unwise moves of myself when I was a child. Well, let's move on from my own unwisdom, and let's look at what Solomon's doing. Get off the topic of me. So you can turn to your Bibles or on your mobile devices to 1 Kings chapter 11. And we're going to be reading from verses 1 to 13 in New Living Translation. And while you're doing that, I'm going to give you a little bit of a warning of what's going to happen at the end of this message. And we're going to go into a time of introspection and looking at ourselves and trying to discover some things about ourselves, uh, asking God to reveal things about ourselves to us. And that can be painful uh, and tough. I know it was tough for me a little bit when I was going through this message of doing some own introspection, so I'm giving you that warning now. Be prepared to ask God to reveal things about you that you might not possibly like. But let's look at our passage here, 1 Kings 11. We're going to start with verses 1 to 3. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, he married women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, Sidon, and from among the Hittites. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them, because they will turn your heart to their gods. 
Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. So we see quite a few obvious mistakes that Solomon's making here. The first obvious one is having 700 wives. Not only that, but throwing another 300 women on top of that. And now I have observed, and I have also been told by other women, so don't get mad at me, but women tend not to get along very well with other women. You might have a few, like, really close friends, but in general, you're likely not to get along with very many of the 699 other women with the fact that you're sharing a husband, living in the same place, and there's another 300 women in the mix as well. Oh, and add on top of that, pretty much all of them were royal births, so that's like 700 princesses. And I'm sure out of 700, there's quite a few like entitled princesses in there. You got a very dangerous mix, Solomon. That was not very wise. The other, oh, actually, before we get to that, he obviously did not write or hear the proverb, happy wife, happy life. Because, I mean, men... We have a hard enough time keeping one wife happy some of the time, a lot of the time, right? Try keeping 700 wives happy. Oh, and then having another 300 women on the side. Not very wise, Solomon. Not very wise. The other second mistake that should have been glowing red letters for Solomon is he was taking a lot of foreign wives, lots of princesses. Now, the problem with this, uh, while Solomon was doing this to make alliances, with many of the nations around him, which is partly the reason why he's living during such a time of great peace. But some of these alliances are probably with nations that Israel doesn't really want to be associated with. You know, you have Egypt, for example. And you know, the nation that enslaved Israel for many generations until Israel cried out to them to be delivered and God had to send 10 plagues on Pharaoh, part the Red Sea, they walked through the wilderness for 40 years because when they complained that they wanted to go back to Egypt, God made them walk through that desert. Yeah, you probably don't really want to associate with a nation that enslaved you for many years. And then when you wanted to be associated with that nation again, God made you walk through the desert for 40 years until your generation died out. Probably not a great alliance or association to have. There is also Moab and Ammon these two nations, and lots of Israel considered these two nations as very impure and unclean nations because they found their origin back with Lot and his daughters, which uh, Wally mentioned a couple weeks ago in one of his riddles, that Lot, the Abraham's nephew, his daughters decided to give him lots and lots of wine and then sleep with them so they could have children. And so... Moab was born and Ammon was born, which became the nations of Moab and Ammon. And so they were considered a very unclean race because of their start with incest. So a lot of Israel didn't really like being associated with them. We see that in the book of Ruth. Um, she was a Moabite woman, and they use a Moabite woman, which was considered a super impure race, to show how faithful they can be. And then lastly, there is Edom as well. Now, they're the brother nation of Israel. Israel gets its origin from Jacob. Jacob has 12 
sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel. And Edom gets its uh, origin from Jacob's twin brother, Esau, even though they don't really look like twins now, do they? They're very different, but they're twins. And Edom's descendants become, or sorry, Esau's descendants become Edom. So you think, oh, great, they should have an alliance with their brother nation, right? Well, it gets a little awkward when you see this story. So David became even more famous when he returned from destroying 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He placed army garrisons throughout Edom, and all the Edomites became David's subjects. In fact, the Lord made David victorious wherever he went. Yeah, Solomon's own father had just enslaved the Edomites, and so now Solomon is going to marry their princess. She has the trump card if any fight arises in that relationship. You spent how much on that bottle of perfume? I'm sorry, your father enslaved how many of my people? Okay, go buy another bottle. She's going to win every time. But 700 of the wives, but having 700 wives, and the majority of them being foreign, weren't the biggest acts of unwisdom. They were the stepping stones to the biggest act of unwisdom. And that's in 1 Kings, our next passage is 4 to 8. In Solomon's old age, they turned his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord his God, as his father David had been. Solomon worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. In this way, Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to follow the Lord completely, as his father David had done. On the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, he even built a pagan shrine for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and another of Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Solomon built such shrines for all his foreign wives to use for burning incense and sacrificing to their gods. In a few hundred years from Solomon's reign, Israel is going to be booted out of the land, their promised land, for three things that they consistently did. One was religious ritualism. This means they were just going through the motions. They would offer their sacrifices to God for the forgiveness of their sins and became a social call continued in what Solomon did, and that was worshiping idols. Solomon starts to set up these altars to other gods, and these gods represent horrible things. There are three mentioned in this passage. The first one is Ashtoreth, who is the goddess of fertility and of war. In places where she was worshipped as a goddess of fertility, to worship that god, you would engage in acts with the temple prostitute. But more often, she was worshipped as a goddess of war. And so they would set up Asherah poles to her. And so if you've read your Old Testament, you constantly read about Asherah poles being set up or being chopped down. They're basically limbless trees because Ashtoreth was represented by a grove of trees. So they set these up and worship her at these places. The other idols that are mentioned are Molech and Chemosh. And they're considered to be the same god, just that Moab calls them Chemosh and Ammon calls them Molech. And these, this was the god of fire. And so it was often represented with a calf head and then the human body and with its arms held out uh, as if it's going to receive something. There's a fly flying around me as if it was going to receive something. And what they would do is they would start a fire in the hands of this uh, 
altar or a shrine. And then they would take a child and kill it and then put it in the fire to offer a burnt sacrifice to that god. So Solomon turns away from the god who gave him the throne, who gave him wisdom, gave him peace, gave him riches, and expanded his territory to worship gods that required prostitution and child sacrifice. And God is obviously angry about this. And we see his response to Solomon doing this in the last passage of our text. The Lord was very angry with Solomon, for his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. He had warned Solomon specifically about worshiping other gods, but Solomon did not listen to the Lord's command. So now the Lord said to him, since you have not kept my covenant and have disobeyed disobeyed my decrees, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your servants. But for the sake of your father David, I will not do this while you are still alive. I will take away the kingdom from your son. And even so, I will not take away the entire kingdom. I will let him be king of one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, my chosen city. In this passage, we see three things about God. First, that God is just. God sees the crime that Solomon has committed and justly punishes him for it. The king is participating in idol worship. And that easily causes the rest of the nation to start worshiping their idols because their leader, their model, is the one who's leading them in it. And that just cannot stand. We also see, though, that God is faithful. He promised David that his son would sit on the throne. And so he doesn't take Solomon himself off the throne for the sake of being faithful to the promise that he made to David. And third, we see that God is merciful. Back when Solomon was dedicating the temple, he prayed this. And now, O Lord God of Israel, carry out the additional promise you made to your servant David, my father. For you said to him, if your descendants guard the behavior and faithfully follow me as you have done, one of them will always sit on the throne of Israel. Now, O God of Israel, fulfill this promise to your servant David, my father. Solomon reminds God of the covenant he made with his father, but there's a condition there. If your descendants, God, their behavior and faithfully follow me, he will always have someone to sit on the throne. Solomon is not following faithfully. He doesn't guard his behavior. He deserves to be taken out of the floor, uh, off the throne. And God had responded to this prayer that Solomon prayed with this. As for you, if you will follow me with integrity and godliness... As David, your father, did, obeying all my commands, decrees, and regulations, then I will establish the throne of your dynasty over Israel forever. For I made this promise to your father, David, one of your descendants will always sit on the throne of Israel. So God had every right to remove Solomon or Solomon's son, the rest of the descendants, off the throne because they did not live up to their end of the bargain. They didn't follow his decrees, his regulations, his commands. They didn't stay faithful to Solomon. Instead, marrying 700 foreign wives when God specifically said, don't marry from the other nations because he knew that they would turn them away to idols. And he starts worshiping other gods. He's not faithful, but God is merciful and keeps to his end of the bargain anyway. He says, okay, I'm not going to take you off because I promised David. And I'm not going to totally take your son off because I promised David again, even though the condition was if you were faithful to me. He's merciful. 
So Solomon's unwisdom in this circumstance actually really stands out because it says that God appeared to him twice and warned him specifically, do not worship other idols. Do not turn away from me. Solomon's proverbs often talk about fools don't listen to wise counsel. And Solomon became the fool that he criticizes so harshly because he does not listen to the wise counsel coming from God himself who says, do not marry all those foreign women and do not worship false idols. God said that to him and he ignored that and went and did it anyway. And he's also the one who had asked God to be faithful to them if they were faithful to God. So let's look at our wall of wisdom and see where Solomon went wrong on these different blocks. Our first block was past actions have future consequences. Solomon does not take into account the future consequences of his foreign marriages to seven women. In the short term, it gave him peace with the nations all around him. But in the long term, it leads Israel into idol worship, which causes them to be kicked out of the land and exile in Babylon in the next few hundred years. That's going to happen. Our next block, God is the source and provider of wisdom. Solomon turns away from God, the source of wisdom, and instead follows other gods and starts worshiping them to the desire of his wife instead of God's, his wives, instead of his God's wisdom. Third, seek God, trust God, love others. He instead seeks idols and begins to trust in them, worshiping them instead of God. And it causes him to participate in unloving acts, child sacrifice, and prostitution, possibly. Fourth, sacred space is everywhere the divine and human meet. Solomon defiles sacred space by setting up shrines and altars to meet with other false gods. Fifth, to get wisdom, listen attentively, ask persistently, live ethically. Even though God appeared to Solomon twice, warning him not to worship idols, he does not listen. And he did not ask God for advice, but God gave it to him anyways, and he starts to stop living ethically. Sixth, practice wisdom, ask and act. He did not ask God and did not listen to God's warnings. And seventh, last week, wisdom is not acquired by mechanical formulations, but by right relationships. You can tell Brad wrote that one, mechanical formulations. That's such like Brad words. Anyways, Solomon trades relationship with God to follow instead the mechanics of worshiping false idols. There's a mechanical system when you worship false idols. You could have the idol of your crops, the harvest, and you have to sacrifice to it to get a good harvest. You have to do something to get something. It's not about relationship. It's about appeasing that idol. There's a progression to Solomon's idol worship. First, he starts leaning towards idols. And he does this by entering into significant relationships with 700 idol worshipers. Now, I'm not saying that we should not have relationships with non-Christians, but Solomon's problem is he enters into a very significant relationship with them. Marriage. He marries them. He becomes one flesh with 700 women. That's a lot of flesh to split up. 
teenagers and young adults who are entering into the dating scene with the intention of marrying someone, finding someone to marry. If you do not have a common belief in who God is, what God has done, or a common allegiance to Jesus, it's going to cause your faith to falter. You're becoming one flesh with that person. And it's hard to go in the same direction if a part of your flesh wants to go the other direction. Solomon was the wisest man the world ever knew. And yet his marriage to 700 idol worshipers caused him to turn away from God. Having Jesus as the foundation of your marriage is very important. Your spouse should push you to have a stronger relationship with God and you should push your spouse to have a stronger relationship with God. That is vital in your marriage. The second step in idol worship is stepping towards those idols. He starts listening to his wives instead of God. And he builds for them shrines and altars so that his wives can worship their idols there. He concedes to their sinful desires. Perhaps he thought, well, building them a couple of shrines and altars couldn't hurt me as long as I don't actually worship him. You know, happy life, happy wife. But he creates an atmosphere around him that is conducive to sin. An atmosphere around him that allows him to easily fall into idol worship. And that is the final step of idol worship, is worshiping those idols. Solomon now worships the idols and turns away from God, the one who gave him the throne, wisdom, peace, and great wealth. Now, we may never fall into worshiping Ashtoreth or Molech or Chemosh. I'd be very surprised if you started worshiping those specific gods, but we are still surrounded by idols. We are constantly being beckoned to turn away from God in pursuit of things like money or sex or popularity or work or families. An idol is anything that takes the place of God as ruler over our lives. We were made to worship. And if we are not worshiping the God who created us, then we are worshiping something else because that's who we are. We're worshipers. So we get our block of wisdom this week from John Calvin, who said this, Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. So this week's block, as I get around the piano, is super short. Know yourself. Is this week's block. We've talked a lot about knowing God, seeking, trusting God, but there's another part, and that's knowing yourself. See, Solomon did not know himself very well, not well enough. He did not see the glowing red letters in his life that warned him he was heading down the wrong direction. Solomon's weakness was the love of women. He pursued many 700 wives, 300 concubines, 1,000 women that he was in love with. And that weakness led him to worshiping idols. They turned away his heart. We need to ask ourselves, what what are our weaknesses? What is that thing that too easily slips into your life, taking the place of God? 
What are the glowing red letters in your life that warn you that you're starting to lean towards or step towards idol worship? It could be the constant seeking of that one item that's going to make you happy. It could be the need to attract attention of that cute boy or that cute girl. It's the temptation of pornography, of wealth, of fame, of popularity. Wisdom is not just knowing God, but knowing yourself. The band's going to come up and play a couple of songs for us. And during this time of prayer response, we're going to have Dale and Anne-Marie and Katie and Allie, yes, on the sides to pray with you. And this is the time that I warned you about of introspection. Maybe you need to come to God and confess your own idol worship in your life. Remember that God is merciful and God is faithful. Jesus promised that he will be with us to the end of age. When we come to him and confess that we have put idols in place of him, he forgives us and welcomes us back with open arms. And when we do introspection, we often, I just put this down, we often do it on our own. We think within ourselves. But we need to ask God to shine the light in those dark places, those dark corners where the cobwebs and the spiders are that we don't like to go. We need to ask God to come and shine light in those areas for us. Because God is our creator. He knows us better than we do. So I encourage you to ask God to reveal to you who you are, the things that you are prone to let take his place. And if you need some help, then please come to our prayer response on the side and pray.